You're psycho. You are psycho. What the hell is wrong with you people? You all belong in the loony bin. Every one of you. Forget you guys. I don't need you. You think you're so happy and you're so damn great because you work in a freaking record store. You think you're so superior. Hey, Joe. Lucas steals nine grand from you. You don't do to him. So you gotta give me a job now? Reboot. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhood Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters. This is Ruined Childhoods, your favorite podcast celebrating cult and classic movies and imagining how they can be brought back today. We are shin deep in our road trip across America, celebrating a movie that represents each U.S. state for each episode. Last time, we were in Connecticut, specifically the town of Mystic. And on this episode, we are in the first state, a.k.a. Small Wonder. If your state fish is the weak fish, you may be from here. If your state flower is the peach blossom, you just may be from here. If your name is Aubrey Plaza, Judge Reinhold, Elizabeth Shue, or Hunter Biden, you were born here unless you just happen to share a name with someone famous. On this episode, we're in Delaware celebrating the songs, styles, and attitudes of Gen X. Dan, you were on the cusp of 18 when Empire Records came out in 1995. Did you see yourself in this movie? Were you represented amongst <laughs> this crew of misfits? Uh, you know, kind of, sort of. Kind of, sort of. So one of the things about this movie is I think it tries to cast a wide enough net and I, I there were elements, uh, there are elements of characters, I would say, of any character that I identified with, probably AJ of okay. all of the, of all of the characters. Yeah, the, especially the at moody, that time. The moody, artistic, the, the well, dreamer. Yeah, yeah, the arti- yeah, the artistic dreamer who's got this like, you know... Like, you know, that was kind of in uh, more high school, but also I would say yeah, around that, like, you know, 18, uh, 19, that just like, you know, oh, yes. How am I going to tell my crush? How am I going to reveal my, you know, that kind of like making it, it's like, oh, it's a really, you know, big moment. And and yeah, the, uh, I kind of I remember like it was I I feel like I connected with that more so than any anything else in this movie i i don't i will i don't see any of like mark in you i don't see any of eddie in you i don't see any of burko in you that's for sure i oh, don't no. see any of gina in you um not so much Corey. i mean maybe like one percent Corey. yeah if, yeah like, if no any. I- <laughs> If you're wondering, John, I'm agreeing with your assessment thus far. Are you going to see uh, like a, a little bit of Lucas in there? Okay, well, OK, we'll get to Lucas in a second. But uh, a I will say, actually, I'm going to I'm going to bump up a lot of Corey a little bit. I'm going to bump up oh, okay. Corey a little bit just because. You have a a taste in certain styles of music that people your age don't typically have. I did, at, especially at that time. At that time, yeah, you were probably. More I mean, now it's now it, music. Now yeah. it kind of doesn't really. Now it it doesn't like matter. 
like I'm 46. Like it, you yeah. know, I like a, I like a lot of things that people my age like. I like a lot of things that people older like, and I like a lot of things that people younger like. And sure, yeah. There's just yeah, it's a it's a big sloppy ass Venn diagram there. But at that time, but when in 1995, and when I was like that age, definitely. I definitely had that taste and, and like I would have you know what so like Rex Manning I feel like among a lot of different people it's he's kind of like supposed to be a Donny Osmond type of character yeah, that, uh, and yeah and and I'm a cop to this like when I was 11 Soldier of Love Donny Osmond's big like come like his big pop single Soldier of Love came out and it hit the charts and it, it's by the way it's the late 80s version of uh what's the, like rex manning's song uh i i keep wanting to say i adore me more but i know it's not that oh. and i don't have it written say down no more say no more say no more mon amour okay close so like i had the single of donny osmond's soldier of wow. love wow did you really like a thief in the night who can't get enough. I am willing to fight because I'm a soldier of love. Yeah. Like a shot. In wow. The dark. Wait, when I don't, I, I don't know. I know bits and pieces of the, I know enough. Okay. This is, this is some Dan, some Dan formation that is new to some, me. <laughs> and I've known you for my entire life. So, that that's that's wild. I didn't know that you had uh, Donny Osmond cas singles. That's pretty cool. I, well, I also singular singular cas singular. Okay, one cas single. That was. I don't even think there was a okay. B side. I just had the A side. That's it. Wow. Well, I can definitely see you uh, around that time still listening to bands like The Monkees, uh, which I know you listen to currently, but even still, like. At around 18, 19, I could still see you. And also, you love Meatloaf. And even though oh. I think that I think that Meatloaf is another one that kind of like maybe people were really into Well, I well, when did Bat uh Bat Out of Hell 2 come out? Okay, I yeah, I thought you'd never ask. So Bat Bat Out of Hell 2 is released in 1993. And Okay, so, so that's just that... right before this. Okay. And that was when I got into Meatloaf and then was kind of gotten gotten into Bat Into Hell retroactively. And I saw Meatloaf perform on the Bat Out of Hell 2 tour in 1994 at the wow. Meadowlands Arena, as it was called then, the Meadowlands Arena. Yeah. Yes. So I feel like in addition to uh, Meatloaf, Donny Osmond... I, I would say that uh, of the characters in uh, Empire Records, Corey may have been also the only one that would have listened to like Chris Isaac. And I know that you were really into him. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know. You don't think AJ would have been in into Chris Isaac if anybody no. else would have known? I don't think Corey... I don't think AJ. I think Corey, uh, definitely not Deb. Definitely not Lucas. No, I I agree with you on on all of this. Okay, cool. Uh, 
Why don't yeah. I do a little bit of a synopsis? And and I have a whole thing where I break down each character. So for anybody You're synopsizing who's... my musical tastes of the mid-90s <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh, you, look, you can pick me apart as much as you want. I can no, volunteer I, information. It's not, it's, I, not re- it's not relevant. It really is not... <laughs> John, honestly, it is not. I mean, like, let's let's put it out there right now. We're on the topic. So so why wait? Um, I know you're going to give the synopsis. But so like one of the of many songs spotlighted in this movie are the gin blossoms. You've got the, the gin blossoms in this movie. Now, the gin blossoms were the opening band for the first concert I ever saw which was it like first real first concert, concert I ever saw right. in in the summer in July of 1993 and uh-huh. the Gin Blossoms were opening for UB40. See UB40 is another one. But they had the number one single in the country at the time and possibly like if not the number one album like a top album in the country at at that time. Okay. Okay. So (laughs) let's two years later when Empire Records came out, not so much, not so much. Right. But at the time I saw them big, but Jim Blossom's opening band. So like I, I was into Jim Blossom's. Yeah, totally. Jim Blossom's were great. So I was on the cutting edge as well as like, sure. On the very dull end of it. Uh. I listened to Jim Blossom's regularly now. I listened to them maybe a week ago, unprompt, yeah. un, not because of Empire Records. No, just because sometimes just it's because nice they're to listen great. to a Jim Blossom song. Makes sometimes you feel it's good. nice to have a new miserable experience. <laughs> I have no follow. All right, shall I synopsize? Yes, please do. All right, here's a synopsis. Uh, there is a trigger warning for self-harm. All right, here we go. On the evening before washed-up Tiger Beat Teeny Bopper has been, Rex Manning is set to appear at music store Empire Records. Employee Lucas discovers that the beloved haven for local music lovers is set to sell out and become a corporate Tower Records-esque franchise called Music Town. Tasked with depositing the day's $9,000 earnings at the bank, Lucas instead decides to head over to Atlantic City and potentially save the store. However, he loses the nine grand setting up Rex Manning Day for failure. Store manager Joe, a defeated 30-something who acts as a cool uncle figure to his group of misfit employees, has to find a way to stave off snooty store owner Mitch while he figures out what to do with his surrogate children. Speaking of which, let's have a little rundown. One of the more reliable employees is AJ, a talented artist who feels like he's not meant to be successful at his craft. However, the one person who believes in him is his mega-crush, Corey. Corey is a well-educated goody two-shoes on the surface, but struggles with a pill addiction and resentment towards her BFF, Gina. Gina is an assertive teen whose confidence is linked to her sexual liberation. However, she secretly harbors resentment towards Corey due to Corey's idyllic family life and intellect. Also dealing with troubles of her own is Deb, whose family life is non-existent and is fresh off a failed attempt to end her own life. And even though he thinks it's his fault, she tells her boyfriend Burko that he didn't do anything wrong. Burko is a fixture in the Empire Records break room, seemingly tasked with only bringing lunch to Rex Manning. But this is just his day job. Burko is also the frontman of a rock band. Another employee with rock and roll aspirations is Mark. On the surface, Mark is a burnout, but his enthusiasm seems to be the heart of the record store. 
Mark is also close buds with employee Eddie, who also works as a pizza guy and weed brownie chef. And we can't forget about Warren, the store's young shoplifter du jour and wannabe employee who can't seem to stay away from Empire Records. The shit show of events that all seem to fall on Rex Manning Day both brings this group together and tears them apart as they try to find meaning in their individual and collective young adult lives. So as Joe, we have Anthony LaPaglia, who's just perfect, I think, in this role. Uh, very exasperated, trying to figure out what to do with his employees who just seem to be kind of failing him at every turn, Uh, especially uh, Lucas, who's played by Rory Cochran. Uh, We have Ethan Embry as Mark, back when he was Ethan Randall. Uh, We have Johnny Whitworth as AJ, Robin Tunney as Deborah, just before her, I think, major breakout uh, role in The Craft. Uh, Renee Zellweger making... Uh, not her on-screen debut, but certainly one of her first big appearances as Gina. Liv, Ty- Liv Tyler, who at this point was pretty much just known for Aerosmith music videos, is Corey. Coyote Shivers is Burko. Brandon Sexton III is Warren. Maxwell Caulfield from Grease 2 is Rex Manning and is Chef's Kiss perfect as Rex Manning. Debbie Mazar plays Jane, who's Rex's uh, manager. And we have James Kimo Willis, who plays Eddie. And then uh, Ben Bode is Mitchell, the store's owner, who gives one of the best line de- deliveries when he comes in. And he just goes, why do I feel like I'm getting screwed? And he just kind of like <laughs> has this moment where he's just like such a perfect uh, villain for this group. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He really is. I feel like your delivery of his delivery Makes me appreciate his delivery all the more. <laughs> uh, I just love it. It's like, why do I feel like I'm getting screwed here? And he like puts up his hands. It's so good. Uh, but yeah, so so Dan, I, tell me full honesty. What are your thoughts about this movie? We can say like past tense around the time when this kind of came out or became popular on home video and today. Yeah, I mean, so speaking to it becoming popular on home video, I don't remember this playing in theaters. It might have played in Manhattan. It hardly played in theaters. Right. So It was out for like maybe two weeks. I think the soundtrack was better known than the actual movie. And the soundtrack Mm -hmm. had some hit songs. It had Till I Hear It From You, and it had uh, A Girl Like You, Edwin Collins, there in the film itself, there are a lot of other songs. Way that more songs. Video yeah. killed the radio star uh, yeah. among them. But in the so the movie, I I saw it on VHS. It was a blockbuster rental. I'm I can almost guarantee mm-hmm. you. And I felt iffy about it at the time, and I didn't know. I felt lukewarm about it at the time. And now I think I realize why. And I view it as a very mixed bag movie. There's so much about it that I really like. And I think it really is trying to do a lot. But I don't, I feel like, and when I say it, you know, like it's it's a collaborative effort. I don't want to necessarily, you know, point the finger at at like the screenwriter, the director, the, yeah. the cast. I think that everyone kind of does their best. I just don't know that they necessarily knew 
how to address some of these topics. And I think some of that perspective from me comes from that there's been uh, almost 30 years of research and a lot more information. And in my work at, at teaching high school, I come into contact with a lot of that research and just knowing a lot of the, you know, the statistics about depression, suicide, pills, uh, you know, just self-image, uh, the damage, why slut shaming, which is a yeah. big part, which is sure, a big part yeah. of this movie. There are a lot of other elements of this movie that I know they're signs of the times, but they didn't. There are some some, you know, like tasteless homophobic jokes. Oh, strewn strewn throughout. Classic mid nineties. There's yes. going to be a a, a yes. poor homophobic uh, joke. Uh, absolutely. And I think that in its trying to call attention to and recognize the different like types of teens, the the different, I guess, subgenres and and that that doesn't change. That is consistent throughout. We I mean, we can go back to our rebel without a cause episode and <laughs> and talk about it. So you've got I think in doing that it minimalizes it. This movie doesn't have the space to really address those issues. Yeah. It's, it's a movie that has all of these and so many logic holes in the plot the whole time. I don't think I recognized this when I was 18 watching it, but now watching it, I'm thinking if this place is in such trouble, why do they have like 12 people all on the clock at once yeah, like at opening. Uh, I don't know what day of the week it is. I don't know if Rex Manning Day let's fell on a weekday that year. Uh, let's assume it's a weekend because it's a pretty well populated store at all hours. Yes. Okay. Let's assume it's a weekend, even if it's a weekend, even if it's a popular store, and it's a it's a big store. We are given the impression there's a there's a lot of space. There's a lot going yeah. on in that store. But still, I would say that there was, and also it seemed like the kind of store where you could just come and clock in wherever, which was very much my experience working at West Coast Video, which was if I had nothing to do on a Saturday afternoon, I would go there and clock in and just hang out. So that uh -huh. there's there's a lot about it, and it, it's unfortunate that there's a lot about it that gets just kind of uh like cornered in into a like almost pigeonholed like i said there's not enough space to deal with things so they're just kind of like labeled and put there and they're they're treated with these lines like i think a lot of the dialogue that robin tunney has yeah uh i'm blanking on her character's name at the moment deb Deb, a lot of the lines and I admire the, the performances are so good. And this movie yeah. reminds me, it reminded me of watching Mystic Pizza and thinking about Roger Ebert's famous quote from his review that this movie is going to be famous for the for the stars it made and yeah. the, the performances from these people who are on the cusp of stardom. And you you ran through the list and we've sure. And, yeah. And we've talked about a lot of Ethan, Ethan Embry, nay Randall has already been with us on our road trip at Sweet Home Alabama. I know. I know. Yeah. So like it is it 
and it, so it is with all compliments to the cast, but like some of the lines that she has, it's like, oh, we're trying to cover this this complex issue. And also, I think it speaks to the fact that there's a there's almost a bit much of the like every female character is having some sort of breakdown and I understand again we are trying to play reality but when it all happens on one day it comes off oh, yeah. as oh teenage girls are crazy that's right it, it is unfortunate that the the people who do seem to be having the most critical crises uh really are the female characters who are all interesting in their own ways but you're right. There wasn't enough time to appropriately deal with what was going on. And also it's oddly distributed because there are so many other cast members. There are so many other characters in this. Right. And to add to that point, you have Lucas who takes $9,000 and loses it all in Atlantic City. What a great yeah. setup for that, by the way, when he walks through the casino and is just like everything is he just randomly like pulls the crank on a slot machine and it oh, hits the jackpot. It hits, he calls twenty-two the on the roulette wheel, it goes, but he's not betting at the time. It's just a No, no, no. It's, it's, it's just perfect. like oh this it's there's something magical about this guy. Yeah. Right, right. It's perfect. He gets to the table and he starts hitting and you're like, oh, no, because the the higher he flies, the harder he's going to fall. But you yeah. know what, though? He's all right. And and we find out we find out later that Lucas has been through a lot in his life and that there is a connection he has with Joe. Yeah. Joe is his foster parent. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Joe is the they're, they're borrowing from from Little Shop of Horrors, basically, where Joe is the Mr. Mushnick here who takes in young Lucas. And like, I think he probably treats him a little bit better than like giving him a cot in the back room of the shop and making him sweep yeah. up. But like, he, yeah, he takes him in. Although I did hear of, I did hear that. Uh, I think it's. Somebody said that Burko lives somewhere in the store. I didn't catch that at all in the movie, but I heard somebody in an interview saying that, and I was like, I didn't catch that at one bit. It wouldn't maybe surprise on the, me, though. Maybe on the roof, because... It's a huge building. It's a huge There's a whole building. upstairs right. in the back that we don't see. Yes, it's it's huge. It's probably, like, the, honestly, there's a lot of ways in which they could downsize, but that's beside yeah. the point. I don't I wouldn't well, well, want them to. I love this record store. Yeah. So Dan, I do want to just let you know a little bit of the backstory. So first of all, there was like 40 minutes cut out of this movie. So perhaps if there was to be a director's cut, it would fill in a lot of those blanks. Would it give the appropriate attention to some of the more major issues going on? Probably not. But I don't know if we'll ever know. Uh, something also to uh, recognize is that uh, Carol Heikinen, who wrote this movie and also wrote uh, Center Stage and The Thing Called Love, this is based on, I believe that she worked at Tower Records. Somebody who she worked with was telling her about an employee who did steal like the day's till and, you know, I don't know if they gambled it away or something, but they stole it and the way that it was dealt with wasn't 
very standard. It wasn't an expected response. Um, uh-huh. They did end up having to like pay it back in installments. They didn't like throw a roof, rooftop concert to like you know <laughs> you know get get all the money back. But um, there there was some sort of story behind it, and I agree with you in a lot of ways about how uneven the movie is and the representation of the major issues that are in this, which I think if for 1995 sensibilities, the fact that it's being brought up in the first place is kind of like, we did it, you know? Well, and, right. and these days it would be each like Deb would just be the movie herself or Corey's pill popping would be a, a movie in itself. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, like I said, it's not, it's not from, you know, it's not misintentioned. It's not malintentioned, yeah. whatever the appropriate word there is. It's just that it doesn't have the, the time space or perhaps even the understanding yet of a lot of these issues. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I agree made, with you. Yeah. Great. Uh, hey, cool. I, I made a bunch of different lists and one of them is things that don't quite make sense. One of them is things that seem slapped in haphazardly, which also could be a result of things getting cut and completely messing with the other scenes. And the other thing is things that I loved. And okay. I would like to I would like to start with the things that I loved because I remember, you know, before rewatching it for this episode, I remember not loving this movie. I always felt like eh, it's not for me. I had seen it a few times and I never quite fell into the camp of like, oh, it's Rex Manning Day, all that kind of stuff. Because Rex Manning Day has become a thing that people celebrate on April 8th. They celebrate Rex Manning Day. So some of the things that I loved, I loved the costume design. I thought that every character was so perfectly represented by their wardrobe. You know, for a movie that takes place all in one day, the 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 wardrobe is so important. This is, you know, the this is a rep- this is their skin. This is everything about them has to tell a whole story. And uh, you know, Lucas wearing all black and he's like the philosophical kind of beatnik kind of a guy and AJ who's kind of like you know, he wears this big old grandpa cardigan and he's very like flowy and go with, you know, just going with whatever kind of attitude and it's representative in his clothing. Uh, we have Gina who's wearing like a cardigan with no shirt underneath that's very low cut and a very short skirt. We have uh, Corey who's kind of having like a bit of an identity crisis because she's got this like big sweater on this like kind of mohair sweater. But then she also has this short skirt on because, you know, she's going into Rex Manning Day intending to sleep with Rex Manning and lose her virginity. So it's kind of like the, you know, she's the goody two shoes, but she wants to make sure that it's clear that, like, she's not all that good. What are you laughing it's at? Really, no, I'm laughing because it's really interesting. I don't want to I don't want I, I to feel like, uh, you know, dirty for pointing this for pointing this out. But like, so you mentioned you mentioned that and it made me think of just kind of like an observation while I was watching the movie because she is planning on she's offering herself to Rex Manning 
And I thought it was interesting that somebody who was intending on being seen in their bra and panties by someone that they are intending to to have sex with, they're not coordinated. Different oh, oh, the underwear bra and panties. Well, yeah, and that is a victim of the the cuts that were made. Because if if you remember the scene in which Corey and Gina are like having lunch together and that's where, you know, Corey slut James slut shames Gina, she yeah. removes the bra underneath her shirt and she gives it back. And I believe that there's a scene in which Gina says, here, wear this bra because it's sexier. And I think that that's where that comes in. And oh, it's then become. Wow. <laughs> yeah. See, that's the thing is like there are things that are. Uh, that don't make sense because of cuts that were made in editing. Like, it definitely yeah. didn't throw me off, but I was just like, that's interesting. I was also like, yeah. you know, okay, she's also like, this is, you know, for all intents and purposes, a kid who's... Sure, <laughs> you know, yeah. So uh, just kind of rounding it out, uh, Deb's wardrobe, it's kind of just like a crop top tank top with, and she's got like a hoodie it just kind of feels appropriate for her character. Uh, then we have Mark, you know, who's wearing kind of, I don't know, grunge. He's kind of got like a grunge look. You know, like he's known skater. to be like skater. Yeah. But it's a, it, I don't know. It just works for the character. And uh, Joe, I mean, he's, I think he's dressed up a little bit more for Rex Manning Day. But, uh, you know, he goes in wearing a tie. But as soon as things start to get really tense, you know, he goes in and finds out immediately that this money hasn't been deposited. The tie goes away and he just becomes a little bit more like the others toward the end. You know, the, the shirt comes untucked and all these things kind of happen to make him fit in over the course of the movie with the rest of the crew. What I think is interesting about his look, especially by the end, like when he, when, when he comes out and, has his his rant in front of the whole store. He kind yeah. of looks like the anti Rex Manning, which oh, is yeah for sure. Which is interesting because he also comes across the performance, the the wardrobe comes across uh, as somebody who maybe wanted to be a rock star. You know, he's got his yeah. drum set, right? He has his drum so, kit in his office. He has an earring, which at the time was like a symbol for I'm edgy. Yeah. It was a, guy. Yeah, right, yeah. a lot less common and a lot, lot less mainstream, you know, acceptable. Yeah. But right. he definitely seems that like, that was like, you know, 20 years ago, he was maybe gonna, you like, you know, have a shot and and now like yeah. you know he's cool with it he runs this record store but yeah like going corporate is that's like no like i gave up the rock and roll i gave up being in i gave up rock and roll as a career but not as a lifestyle well but his hands are tied with the music town thing because right. as we find out he's been saving up this money in order to kind of buy them himself out and buy out the record store so that he doesn't have to kind of be under Mitch's supervision and his desires to turn this thing into a big franchise. So, uh, you know, he's he's got so many elements of the rest of his, you know, Gen X crew and uh, I 
it's, you know, he's kind of, I think it's like, he's almost resigned himself a little bit, especially now that he's kind of in this back and forth battle between like, I had this opportunity to make something of, of my own with this store, but I am being torn in this other direction where it's like, it's being taken away from me by my employee's bad decision and who didn't know all the details and yeah. Well, and in turn also his bad decision to trust Lucas with that. Right. Cause this was Lucas's first time closing the store. So yeah. also I want to, I want to move on a little bit of the things that I love because also uh, along with costume design is the set design because mm. I mean, Dan, how much fun would you have had hanging out in any corner of that store? So much fun. I would have spent yeah. an entire day in there easily. It was dialed in in every single way on the inside and on the outside. It looked like the coolest place in the world. And mm-hmm. who could blame Warren <laughs> for wanting to work there? Because it <laughs> seems like it's such a an awesome little family that they have there. And it's, uh, as, I mean, he fits in so perfectly because he represents a different element of the kind of Gen X counterculture. You know, he, right. he's into metal and rap and he's a delinquent and I, uh, yeah, he, he can run his mouth, but he can also hang with everybody and he's embraced by them despite all of the, that he's put them through throughout the day. So I just thought of it. You you said, all right, he's into metal and rap. So I realized that the downfall of Empire Records, as we know, is not going to be whatever music, music land or music, music town. It's going to be Warren because Warren's going to introduce them all to like Limp Bizkit in, in a couple <laughs> of years. And, and just like, well, the real uh, downfall everyone... is going to be the real downfall is going to be like Napster. Na- well, I yeah. mean, yes. There, there's yeah. a lot of real downfalls of record stores beyond oh, yeah. corporate, you know, there's no music town anymore either. In oh, fact, no. there's more, yeah. there are more independent music stores than. It's true. Well, James. and we'll, and we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, so kind of what going else through do you my love? list. I also love, you know, even though the movie is messy and weird and a lot of things don't make sense, it's still really fun to watch. It's just weird it captures a certain, I don't know, style of that time that is very specific to the mid-90s that I don't think fits with other eras. I agree with you. I think something that was fun for me to see was it, it was a really nice time capsule, and not to sound cliche, but seeing them without phones oh was, absolutely was refreshing and well not just they, not just without phones but also i felt like the store phone was so cool because it was you know beat up and ratty but like it was very active i don't know that that's the one like phone element that i actually really loved about this yes yeah the that was great. And just looking at it and saying like, oh, yeah, like that there's an element to it that is very realistic and relatable, especially if you worked in any type of store like that. So having worked in in a video store, mm-hmm. I we didn't quite have fun the way that they had fun, but we would yeah. do things 
like if it was slow in the middle of the day, we'd take some printer printer paper, crumple it up, and then we'd take some empty like VHS boxes, like shell cases, and Uh we we played baseball. You'd have okay. We had it all set up, and like there, if you hit the cardboard standee for for there's something about mary like if you hit cameron diaz it was a double and if you hit the alfred hitchcock standee it was a triple or whatever so we had fun we did things like that we would play the same movies over and over again and quote them yeah so it was like it was similar to the vibe at empire records empire records just of course, being a, a record store, cooler, yeah. higher cool factor. Also, it was pretty big, pretty big record store. And sure. you'd also have like eight people working at once. And at they, least they were all really, really close. <laughs> yeah, it seemed. Yeah. So I mean, even the customers, I feel like knew who they were. Yeah, and we'll get to that more soon, but I wanted to mention one more thing that I loved about the movie, and then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the weirdness. Uh, One other thing that I was thinking about, because I watched it a few times to prepare for this episode, and what I, I came to realize is that, and I don't think that this was done intentionally, but this movie is probably a really great movie to watch if you have ADHD because there are a lot of elements to it. And I'm not saying this to, to make fun of anybody or to, uh, I don't know, single anything out, but there are so many elements that I feel would really work for somebody who's maybe, maybe thinks differently to appreciate this movie because that maybe if you're looking for something that's a little bit more straightforward or like a David Fincher movie or something like that, like it's not going to feel like that. You know, there are, there's like literal sound effects. I, at the beginning when he's drumming on the money, you hear drum sounds. And then when Warren is talking about being in a car, you hear like a car revving up sound. And there's all these like different sound effects that are very literal. The the music is very literal. There's a, a version of Hey Joe that plays when Joe is, you see Joe and he's really upset. Right. And you know, there's a lot of things that are like connecting the audio with the visual that you typically don't see in movies. Also, there's a lot of fourth wall breaks especially from Lucas. We also have one from Mark. Uh, We also, uh, also there's something to look at in every frame. There's something going on. There's, uh, and this is just also the nature of it being a cool indie record store. There's posters all over the place. There's stickers all over the place. There's flyers. There's cool, weird things. There's, you know, butthead in the background on the, on the board. Uh, You know, there's like all these things that you can notice, but also, when it's time to focus up, there's literally a buzzer noise indicating that the music is stopping. There's a buzzer and it's like, listen up. Something is about to happen that you have to listen to. So I think that in a way, it's kind of a great movie to watch if you're somebody who has a hard time focusing on plots or lots of dialogue. You know, it gives you those opportunities to kind of just kind of go in and out. So that's a really interesting observation. I would be so interested to 
do like an experiment and and look do more research into that and say you know are are there certain films <laughs> that people with ADHD sh- like can and yeah. should check out I did look up some things and what I found were movies that talked about ADD and ADHD uh and then also there were lists of movies that somebody with ADHD was able to sit through and Empire Records was one of them. So okay. I was like, okay, so confirmation, but it's like, that could be for a number of reasons. It's also um, a brisk but anyway, 90 minutes. It's a 90 minute movie, which is in, in many ways serves it. It might not serve its sure. treatment of some of the more serious issues, but to your point, that running time, I think really helps you keep the movie moving along and, and a lot going on. Yeah. While it is happening. Sure. So I, w- I want to talk now about things that didn't quite make sense in the movie. And mm-hmm. uh, we could either breeze through these or if there are things that you wanted to talk about, some of the things we've already covered, like so many people work there. Like that's one thing. <laughs> it's just like, why is the staff so big? Maybe you could have not been, uh, you know, burning through so much money if maybe Eddie didn't work there or something. Because I don't even know if he really, d- he seems to at some point. I don't know. So one of the in. things. Doesn't he clock in? He clocks. Doesn't he take? A yeah, time he card does clock and... in. He clocks in. Burko clocks in. The people who you don't right. actually see working, you see clock in. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Debbie Mazar's character Jane quitting to Joe didn't make sense, and Joe is all upset about it. Probably because then it's like, oh, I have to deal with Rex Manning now. But it's like, oh, that doesn't make sense. But that's not the upset that he seems. It, it, the upset that it seems is where there's, it seems like there's some connection between them. Like they didn't just meet. Oh, f- from what I can tell, it's their first time meeting. There's the scene that jo- uh, Joe, uh, Joe, Jane, Jane, Joe. Right. Yeah. Scene. Yeah. The, so, they're, you like, see them meeting each other. Yeah. They do meet, so now I'm well, wondering... Well, unless, like, unless, unless we are to assume that they are their same characters from Sorry Married Next Murderer two years ago. Yes! In which case yes. they had met. But that's what I was wondering because I always... That's another thing that to me never really sat right was that they seem to have this pre-existing relationship and I'm saying, am I carrying that over from Soy Married Next Murderer? <laughs> Getting electrocuted. Sorry, that's just Debbie Mazar. Okay, so one thing that I want to mention, and and I was thinking of this when you said the people in the store who seem to have, you know, this part, like they're part of the story. I did not like the moment when there's the ballerina listening to music on the headphones and Mark is like sexually assaulting her. He's like getting up in her face about to kiss her and then she like notices him and then he grabs her foot and kisses her foot. Not cool. She clearly does not know him. Yeah. Anyway, that's something I didn't love that, uh, that, that whole scene, uh, Joe being mad that everyone is dancing to Rex Manning. And I say this because the customers in the store are dancing as well. So, why get so upset in that particular moment about that particular thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is spoiler territory, but but Mitch 
selling the store to Joe for cheap seemingly comes out of nowhere. It really All we know about Mitch sense. is that he just wants to make money and uh, he wants to turn the store into a, a cash cow. And then I uh, love he sits, stands behind the counter for two minutes and is just like, forget it, you can have it. I love the backstory where it it was a, like a toilet supply yeah. shop that his father turned into a record store. And Mitch is like, oh, if it was if we had stayed in toilets and, and I think Mitch is another is a great representative of that kind of that 80s generation and yeah. the you know oh i would be making some, like toilet supplies are so much more profitable yeah than than records so i i i yeah. liked that aspect of mitch but yeah it makes no sense that mitch is all about money is just like fine give me this bucket of cash and oh yeah, yeah i'll work behind the counter for a few minutes and begrudgingly like someone comes up with like a coupon. He's upset about the coupon. Yeah. Also, it's just like, there's so many people there. He should just be like, damn, this is going to be a good sales day, you know? But instead he's like, why am I getting screwed here? (laughs) Sorry. I just love that line. (laughs) So one other thing that I really didn't, makes sense to me and didn't sit well with me is how okay everyone is with Joe hitting Lucas. I, uh, mm. you know, he, yes, Lucas took $9,000 and really screwed things up for everybody, especially Joe, but to physically assault him, ah, not okay. And OSHA it's violation. kind of like, well, right, but it's like, yes, it, it's, it kind of falls into two different categories. You know, he is his employee, but he also was his, like, foster child. And, and Joe, I mean, Lucas, I'm sure, is, like, over 18, and that falls into a different category and everything. But, like, it's just so not okay on so many different levels. I thought about that when I was watching it, and I, I wondered yeah. if it was more that at – at the time, and like, yeah, at the time in an actual workplace, yes, that is not believable. There would be problems. There would be follow-up, no matter what the relationship yeah. between uh, employee and employer is or isn't, there would be follow-up. But yes, I think that as a plot device, it was something that at that time... I can't think of any other movies where that happens, but I'm sure there are other similar things that we just said at the time, oh, well, that's how this is resolved. And we know that now that yeah. they're now they're they're good. I'm not a- agreeing with it. We know it's not healthy. Right. Then yeah. again, it's also, you know, though, it, there we go. We've got some of that instability there being applied to a male character. Absolutely. Yeah. But of course, there's, uh, another there's thing, no, but there's no recourse for it. No, not at all. No. Uh, another thing that didn't make any sense, and this cannot be explained by anything at all, is that at the, the party at the end, we see girls wearing nothing but underwear and Music Town aprons. And it's like, none of them were there when Gina did this. There's nothing to base this off of. It just doesn't make any sense. It just becomes 
a music video shoot. Uh, at absolutely. That point. Yeah. All right. So there was also uh, a lot of things that seemed to be slapped together haphazardly, uh, such as AJ's decision to go to art school in Boston. Yeah. Did that, that not was... seem so out of nowhere to you? Yeah, that was quite a quite a swerve. That's something that you just kind of, you know, decide to do and figure out and and lock down and uh, you know within and a perhaps couple of hours. there was another scene that explained that. I don't know. That maybe it just shows him thinking or writing in his notebook, and it says like. Boston College with a question mark like I don't know like a list of schools in the area uh yeah so I don't I don't know that one seemed to be just like what's going on and that kind of leads me into what I'm sure you are dying to talk about which is the faux funeral scene where they are going into this trying to make Deb feel appreciated but and it's and Deb acknowledges like uh what up guys this is about me but you know aj makes it all about himself and uh, talks about being too afraid to go to art school this is the first time we've ever heard about art school and then two scenes later he's going (laughs) Corey changing the subject to gina even though it was her idea to do this whole thing for deb she's too wrapped up in her bullshit with gina gina brings up wanting to sing in a band that's Seems like it comes out of nowhere. And then, of course, two scenes later, she's singing in a band. Uh, Knows all the words to the song. (laughs) uh, Look, that one, who knows? Whatever. Yeah. No. Lucas's whole bedwetting thing, I felt like there are different ways to bring up the fact that Joe brought you in without doing this little thing about being a bedwetter until he was 10. I don't know. Being abandoned. And being abandoned right. but but not because he was a bedwetter i know it's like he tells this whole thing and he's like that's not why i was abandoned so i just told you all that for no real reason i don't know yeah that definitely felt i i i agree with you there i don't want to uh, disrupt your list before I, oh yeah I well well that was yeah that was definitely just like that whole faux funeral scene i felt like had potential. It gave Deb the impetus to talk openly about her experience and, uh, you know, what it was like for her to have this self-harming experience. And it's just like we were saying before, it's kind of like the, the magnitude of that situation is not appreciated by the characters in the movie or the movie itself. Yeah. You You know, know? I, I wondered with the, with the funeral, if they were trying to, if it was acknowledging or intentionally like the very somewhat similar faux funeral in mash. Huh? In which uh, I hadn't even thought about them. Yeah, there I forget uh the one but there's the 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 one guy who's very depressed and and talks about suicide yeah. and it's where we get yeah. the song suicide is painless. <laughs> yeah, the theme. Right. And that that's a good point. I hadn't even thought about that the mash connection. I doubt that uh, you could be a you're going to be a filmmaker 
especially one working in the in the 90s who would have been aware of Robert Altman, certainly, uh, who would have not have seen MASH. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, uh, that was it's definitely inspired by. But I felt like the way that it was done in MASH, there was something about it where it's like the whole idea of this guy uh, and and it's been a minute since I've seen MASH, but the idea of him where he's just like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, commit suicide. He's very non, he's very lackadaisical right. because he thinks that he's gay. Is that what, what it is? I forget. It's been a minute since I've seen MASH as well. I think that what it is, is like they tell him that he's probably gay. And so he's like, oh, well, then I'm going to kill myself. And then they have this funeral for him. And then one of the women sleeps with him. And then the next day he's like, oh, no, 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 we're good. Right. I I, I want to say that that's what happens in MASH, right? It's very satirical. (laughs) It's it's funny. It fits in with the movie. The tone is very different from this. Yeah. Right. So yes. uh, in, in in a different scene, of course, uh, actually just following that, this is where we have Warren saying that he wants to work at Empire, which comes out of absolutely nowhere. Right. And uh, this is like, you know, he's got the gun and he's like, you all think you're so superior. And, and I, I, appre- I feel like it's so close to being dialed in. And he's like, you think you're so great because you work at a, you know, you work at a record store. And uh, it almost felt like there could have been an exchange that got him to being like, well, well, you wouldn't. Why would anybody hire me? Like, you know, you would seriously hire somebody who just like robbed your store and is got, holding up a gunpoint. And it's like, well, do you want to work at a record store? And he's like, you know, look, at, I mean, you all seem like you're having you've got it all figured out. You've got it all together. You know, that could be the yeah. moment that kind of makes it click for them. And uh, but instead, it just comes up out of absolutely nowhere. So anyway, there's that. And I, it's another it's another one of those like, hey, there are a lot of other things that you're that are coming up with this character that are definitely not being addressed or or taken seriously but that's that and that's kind of beside I agree with you. I feel like it is close yeah. to being dialed in but is right. It it falls short. It's again, I feel yeah. like it they they didn't know how to do it. It was sure. they, they didn't I, know what they had there. <laughs> I mean, I felt like it did help you then connect like when Lucas he's like you would hire me and Lucas goes like well he hired me you know of course Warren doesn't know the backstory or anything he's like I mean it seems like Lucas kind of has has it all together with the all he knows is that he stole this nine thousand dollars he doesn't know the whole thing about his upbringing and how Joe kind of like plucked him and you know cared for him so I don't know um but another then maybe one, and he can I think, be the next. But he, yeah, but he doesn't know the whole backstory. So no, I know. Anyway, yeah. so uh, the uh, Corey's pill popping is another one that I think that there were probably some things that were cut out. You know, we definitely have her at the beginning mentioning how you know she was up all night making cupcakes and all these other things and whatever. It's and then you know we see her taking a pill after a confrontation with. Um, with AJ after she tells him like, oh, but I, you know, I, I don't think of you that way. And then, you know, he kind of storms off and then she takes a pill 
Doesn't she take a pill after like, the Rex thing happens? I don't remember. I feel like there's something like she comes out after the Rex and... thing. After the Rex thing, she just goes up to the roof. I don't remember right. if she had the pills there. But there's anyway. another thing I think is a, a, a staple of Gen X films of the '90s. You have to have your your rooftop scene. Oh it's, yeah, it's in this. It's in Reality Bites. It's in Clerks. It's in. Uh, I'm I'm missing a couple. Singles? Are they ever up on a roof? Singles? No, they're I, on balconies. Singles? They are. They are balconies. Singles is is less of a of a of a rooftop movie, but Seattle is also yeah. less of a rooftop city. So I there you go. Maybe. Yeah. So I've got I've got one other thing that that just seems completely nonsensical, slapped in haphazardly. Okay, the guar scene. <laughs> I think that everybody can acknowledge that this scene was totally weird and out of place and doesn't make any sense. Nevertheless, it's still fun. But Dan, I feel like, you know, we are living in a in a time where in many places in the United States Marijuana is legal to purchase and consume, and we can openly talk about how it works, especially when you are ingesting it through food. He's taken a bite of this weed brownie, and suddenly he is hallucinating and is transported into another world that is not how marijuana works. I'm sorry, that does not, that one doesn't happen. Also, if you are eating a weed brownie, give it. 45 minutes before it kicks in it's not like an instant hallucination (laughs) my note here is i assume mark is not on his first brownie (laughs) i i mean even still uh, because of a the fact that he's already that high but also the fact that he's apparently also tripping so yeah maybe he's not maybe there was he yeah Maybe there was a scene cut where Eddie also talks about adding LSD. He just says there's extra sugar. I I know, which I think is just his cheeky way of being like lots of weed. Right. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what, what I assumed. But yeah. yeah, no, it's this is not. And I and I know and it, and I feel like it is one of the more I, iconic scenes of the movie. It's one of the more standout scenes when Mark sees himself on stage with Guar being in the, yeah. consumed. And I, I like, I think it's really funny, but I'm, yeah, it, it's filler. It has it's, nothing to do well, with it. Well, yeah, it, right. But it's, I don't know, it gives the film a stronger identity as yeah. uh, something that isn't going to be like anything else. And well, uh, yeah, it, it, it does help it in a way, even though it like completely doesn't make sense. It does set up when Mark is behind the counter all alone and the other like 19 employees are all in the back. It's during the funeral. It's during the funeral. Mark is. But I feel like that would have been the same had he had brownies or not. Right. But I when I watched it. And there's not a there's not enough. There's not enough of that scene to show. Yeah. Oh, Mark is dealing with all this. If we went back to another hallucination, 
it would yeah. it would work better if, if we revisited that. But I did think like, oh, you could have done more with that. You could have connected it. And maybe that's why he's so panicked. But you're right. It's not set up to show that, oh, he's panicked because yeah. he is like tripping balls on weed brownies. <laughs> yeah. So the one other thing that I wanted to bring up about this movie that is not actually part of the movie itself, but we are recording this episode this Empire's Records episode during this series where we're talking about the different states for our Delaware episode. And in so many lists of like iconic movies set in Delaware, this movie is like number one next to Fight Club. And uh, nowhere in the movie is it acknowledged at all that this takes place in Delaware. There is nothing to even allude to it. It was not filmed in Delaware. It was filmed in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is not Wilmington, Delaware. And I I was really confused by this because there's nothing that indicates that this could that this is Delaware. And my assumption is that people saw filmed in Wilmington and assumed Wilmington, Delaware and not Wilmington, North Carolina, but it's just uh, been it's just been attached to it. I would say that the only and this is this is grasping at straws here the that Lucas rides his motorcycle to and from Atlantic City in which at midnight takes between an hour and 20 and an hour and 40 minutes I Google mapped it. So yeah. it can't take place in North Carolina because geographically it wouldn't he wouldn't be able to get back by the time he gets back. Right. So it needs to be close enough to Atlantic City, which, by the way, this is our second episode in a row where there is a an unintentional Trump connection. But that's just because oh, he passes, yep. you know, Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, kind of impossible to to miss. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Also, in, mid 90s Atlantic City, it's going to happen. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Dif- different different connotations than than now. Yeah. But yeah, there's that. I can't think of the, of any other I can't think of any indications that Fight Club takes place in Delaware. Uh okay. So I talked to my friend Nick Krill, who some people may know from the Spinto band, um, also the band Teen Men. He is a an audio engineer for a lot of really incredible uh musicians on the East Coast. And I asked him about Delaware films. And what he said is that, you know, Dead Poet Society was filmed in Delaware, but I think it takes place in Massachusetts. So it's filmed there, but it's not set there. And then he says Fight Club takes place in Wilmington, but I don't think people really know slash represent that picture. Uh, And he says, for me, it would be Empire Records, but I don't think that resonates out into the general public. So uh, in Fight Club, it does reference Newark and there are license plates and addresses that are Delaware. Got I it. couldn't find any license plates in Empire Records or anything, any signs indicating, like there was one like, you know, show poster, but it was referencing uh, Emo's, which is in Austin, Texas. So uh, I was like, well, it can't be Texas. You can't get to Atlantic City and back. 
between midnight and theoretically like 9 a.m. No. or something. Yeah. I so, think I I think I might have always assumed it was Jersey. In one IMDb trivia or goof thing, somebody says New Jersey, but everywhere where you look at lists of Delaware movies, it's like number one on the list. Also, it's like I'm just going to go to the Wikipedia page and it's the first line in the plot it, at independent record store Empire Records in Delaware. Like, yeah. that's how it starts. Like, I I don't know where that came from. I did send a message on Instagram to uh, Carol Heikinen, who wrote the movie, to just ask her, could could somebody please explain to me? what's going on here. And, and I just never heard back from her, but granted I only messaged her about four hours ago. So, uh, uh, that remains a mystery, but the internet has decided it's in Delaware. So we will just accept that. I, I, I'm, I'm down with that. I'm cool with that. (laughs) There's enough, there's enough there. And it does, there's, I don't know. I have no explanation for this, but it does feel more Delaware than any, it doesn't feel Pennsylvania. It doesn't feel New Jersey. Anywhere where you would be going to Atlantic City like that. Yeah. Of all the yeah. states. It just feels Delaware to me. So I'm cool with right. that. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's just one of those oddities, I think. I think that somewhere it somebody said Delaware and it just caught on. I think that that's just a piece of information that, you know, sprung up not relating to anything and just kind of went viral in a way. Uh, but it's, it doesn't make sense, but we're okay with it. And we've decided. Makes enough sense. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the ongoing legacy. You know, I, I said before that April 8th is known as Rex Manning day. Uh, and that's essentially just a, a an annual recognition of the movie empire records uh, Ethan Embry said that it should be April 8th because that's the day that Kurt Cobain died. And so it's kind of like, you know, the uh, an icon of the generation, um, you know, kind of had this day kind of attached to him. And it's kind of a way to kind of celebrate the day in a different way. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if you've ever celebrated Rex Manning Day <laughs> taken no, off think- from uh, work or anything. I think I I've recognized it and it is it normally falls on a weekend so I don't uh no I don't April 8th so Rex Manning Day is 2 days after my son's birthday. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Another bit of uh of Empire Records legacy is that it has been adapted into a musical. Uh, 2018 is when this started. And then in 2021, there was a um, like a work. They workshopped it and did like a stage reading of it. There hasn't been any news since then, but I'm sure that, you know, things can just move slowly. I certainly hope that it is still happening. But uh, but Dan, I want to know what you what would you want to do with this? All right. So I think. What this calls for is a kind of a straight up remake. I and and this is where and there are a lot of elements I would I would want it rewritten. And I would want it set in 1995. 
I think I would want a lot of the same songs, and I would definitely want the same costume design. So not necessarily a shot-for-shot remake. This is not a Gus Van Sant psycho, but a remake, a revision, something that takes Empire Records, and yes, we, we need to recast it. But take Empire Records and rewrite it and, you know, right the wrongs. It needs to be refined. There's so much about it that I really wouldn't change. And that brings us back to the costume design, because one of my notes and one of the, the things I definitely thought about in this remake was like, I want the same costumes. Oh, yeah. I think I want the same songs as well. I Sure. Yeah, I think just different, different actors, not because these did anything wrong with these actors, but they are they They cannot aged out. Yes. Yes. So get yourself a get yourself a cast, get your and the fun in this casting, because honest, I have no one. I have no suggestions for uh, anyone playing the like the the teenage roles. But it's fun thinking about. All right, who would play Joe? Who would play Rex Manning? Who was the teen heartthrob? Who was our, who were like our teen heartthrobs in 1995? Like, I would love to see Leonardo DiCaprio as Rex Manning. He'd be a good Rex Manning. He'd have fun with it. I would love to, the only thing, like, it would be a little close to Rick Dalton, but... Well, I I, I would think still love to say, or like Toby Maguire, <laughs> Toby Maguire, who was supposed to be in the movie. Oh, Did in Empire, in Empire Records. Yeah. So, okay. Part of the whole thing with Empire Records is they, uh, they all kind of housed up along the the shore in, uh, uh in North Carolina, in Wilmington, North Carolina, and. They all just partied and did all sorts of drugs and stuff. And for all the time that they were there, they were all together and they were just kind of this big family. And uh, there were like, I think, three other characters that were supposed to be in this movie that just got cut out. And uh, Tobey Maguire was cast in the movie. And I believe that he was either going to be Lucas or maybe AJ or maybe Mark. I was going to say, he, I could see him as Mark. Yeah. So, but it wasn't like locked in. And I think that he just like, I think I, I read somewhere that he did like drugs one night and decided that he was going to go back to LA and he was going to uh, uh, write a screenplay. And, you know, clearly things worked out for him. But yeah, he was, uh, he was supposed to be in the movie. So it's funny that you mentioned Tobey Maguire. Right. Okay. So that would be an interesting. Okay. So you're just going down everybody in the pussy posse. I. I. Well, you know who I was. So is Ethan do Supley next? Is that who we're who we're talking? I was going to say Mark Wahlberg would oh. be another interesting. Well, so if we're talking about a Maxwell Caulfield type, then shouldn't it be somebody who maybe had a big leading role and then kind of slipped into obscurity? Well, if we're going to try to be accurate, that accurate about it, that would be fine. Who are you thinking? Well, no, because I, I, I read an interview that Maxwell Caulfield did do, and he said that because of his experience where 
right before Grease 2 came out, he was like all set. He's like, as soon as this movie opens, I'm going to be a huge star. And then it opened and to little fair fanfare. And uh, it did it didn't happen for him. You know, he worked, but like when he thought that he was going to be this big star, it was a very humbling moment. And so to play this character that is experiencing this very humbling day, he's, it could resonate with him. And so I felt like uh, to, to honor that in a remake, it would be appropriate to kind of recapture that same kind of vibe. I mean, it's Rex Manning, so you can go in a lot of different directions with it. Right. Yeah. I'm 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 brainstorming. I'm, I mean, if you had like Lance Bass do it, that would be so much fun. Oh, uh, Lance! You know, Bass he would have be. fun with it. There's so many actors that would be a lot of fun in that role. Someone a a, a teen idol that faded into obscurity. Okay, yeah, yeah I can I don't have anyone off the yeah. top of my head for for obvious but, reasons. Yeah, but also if you're talking about the like you know the younger cast, because if we're talking about you know, between the ages of like 18 and 25, uh, you know, Coyote Shivers, Burko was probably the oldest one and was yeah. probably like supposed to be like 25. If you're going there, I think that what was also cool about Empire Records is that, you know, there were pretty much unknowns. Liv Tyler was from the Aerosmith music videos. Ethan Embry was probably the most successful of them, you know, it co-starred in Dutch with Ed O'Neill. Yeah. And All I Want for Christmas. Yeah. So he had a bit of a career where people would have seen him. Yeah. Renee Zellweger was, well, I guess Rory Cochran was probably. At that point had had yeah. Dazed and Confused. Dazed and Confused. Renee so Zellweger a nice to a lesser shout out extent. to Dazed and Confused in the Yeah, store. the Have a Nice Day, the little yeah. smiley face. Yeah. yeah. Zellweger, I think at that point had done the the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. Oh, geez. The one that, Mc, that McConaughey was in as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, so I feel like amongst the cast, those were, that was pretty much it. And I, uh, so to, to have a, a remake with other kind of like unknowns, maybe people who are like, maybe on, you know, about to be better known makes, right. makes sense to do honoring, you know, the, the original kind of, so, so yeah, you'd want to do a, a remake. Yeah. Straight up remake. No need to get uh, high concept or fancy. I mean, the most high concept thing about this was be, would be retaining so much from the original film. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, memorable lines and moments. And I felt like the and this probably goes a lot with, you know, what, what I was just talking about before with the fact that they all just like lived together for the entire duration of the shoot. You know, they did have this chemistry. They did have this camaraderie where it's like you believed that these people, even though they're all these different archetypes, you believe that they kind of come together and they have this relationship uh, because they 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 bond together all the time at this record store because they all work all the time. And even if they're not working, they're there on their breaks (laughs) from their other jobs or coming in early to do homework, even though they're not supposed to work until later. I don't know, like all these things. Yeah. That's where life happens. It's where you go to shave all your hair off. Uh, it's where you go to do your boss's taxes inside one of the listening rooms. Anyway. 
it's it's a, it's where a you whole go thing. to have your fake funeral to have eat your pot brownies look if you have the square footage you may as well you've got a room you may as well for concerts it. yeah that's that's my idea I have I have not the playing around with the casting is fun because also the casting of of Joe who's going to who's going to play Joe and I would definitely like be clear about the relationship between Joe and Jane in my remake. Yeah. If nothing else, that's what I will do. But yes, that's my <laughs> idea. What is yours? So, I thought of a few different things, but the one that I kind of liked the most was a you know the this was kind of much bigger before covid but in mostly LA and probably also New York you had a lot of these pop-up restaurants i feel like it'd be really cool to do a pop-up like record store and like recreate empire records the store oh yeah and you know you could have rooftop concerts and, you know, you could have a whole like, you know, well, from uh, from three to three thirty, it's there's a Rex Manning, uh, you know, costume character kind of a guy coming out signing autographs and stuff like you could do a whole thing. It would do so well. It'd be what so much fun. fun. What and what a fun way to do it. You could do it. It would be such a fun thing to do. And I would say like, oh, on record store day, but it would, fu- it would. No, it'd be Rex Manning. Day. No. Yeah. So it would just, what a fun thing for independent record stores to do, which as we said before, there really are only independent record stores. Yeah. Well, you and I, we live in, I'd say some of the more, uh, alt bigger cities. Yes. Seattle yes. and Portland are both, you know, a little bit fringier than, you know, L.A. You know, I, I guess Austin would also probably fall into the same category as Seattle and Portland. Yeah. There's probably some other cities, you know, around that would this would work really well in. Um, yeah, Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. But even and. Even in the areas where that's not the case, not that too many people are buying physical music, but if they are, they're buying it from Walmart or Target. Target. Yeah. So there's not, Sam Goody is not around anymore. Sam Goody is not around anymore. That's true. Music Town, Music Land, Tape World. (laughs) What were all the other, there were all the other great uh, chains. Well, and we've talked about this before in the podcast, but where you and I grew up in Cranford, New Jersey, we had browsers and yes. off the record. Browsers was better for tapes. Off the record was better for vinyl. Uh, once CDs came in, you saw that creeping in. Off and, the uh, record was there first. Off the record, off was, the record was there was first. The OG, yeah, sure. But browsers certainly, as we've established before, terrible name for a store where you're trying to turn a profit. Uh, but it it holds a place certainly in my heart um, as a uh, I don't know just like an iconic oh, establishment in my in my upbringing. Absolutely, we had and, a lot of also, great. Uh, there, uh, there were a lot of great record stores in our area. We, Westfield had the music staff. Yeah. Westfield had a few. They had Sound Station. Well, we are also we grew up not too far from a vintage vinyl 
which was a yes. huge vinyl store. I don't know if that's still around anymore, but I believe that was a chain. But it, it wasn't. I think there were two. Right. There was. I mean, like the franchise. There was just there was more than one. Yeah. Um, going back a little bit, Dan. You know, you mentioned that you used to work at West Coast Video, but that location wasn't that an independent store that got turned into a West Coast Video. It was a Palmer Video. Palmer Video, but Palmer was like teeny tiny regional just a few right whereas west coast video was like you know a a much bigger yeah. it yes. wasn't maybe this you know it wasn't blockbuster big but it was close behind it wasn't blockbuster it wasn't hollywood video i i don't know how far the west coast video like franchise ranged but yeah it, yes it was more of the the corporate video store yeah. blockbuster i may have uh shared this anecdote before but blockbuster the most corporate well yeah you the, worked there briefly i worked there briefly it is the only job to this date and mind you i work with children it is the only job that i've ever been drug tested for and they did wild. They did a hair test. Really? Yes. Did they, they do it regularly or was it just when you were being hired? Just when I was being hired. Got it. Yes. Jeez. No so weird. No worries. I passed. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh yeah. Well, I guess it's a good thing that Mark didn't try to get a job at Blockbuster. No, Mark would not have been hired at Blockbuster Video. They would not have appreciated his. You could not at Blockbuster. I got in trouble for talking to friends of mine who came in while I was like vacuum sweeping at at the at the end of the night. Imagine if I tried eating pot brownies and watching a Guar video. Wild. I would have never passed the drug test. Yeah. Well, I I had so much fun. Uh, rewatching this movie and kind of looking at it through a different lens than I ever had before. If you, our dear listeners, have ideas of how you would want to bring Empire Records back uh, these days, please email us ruinchildhoodspod at gmail.com. There's a link in the episode's description with all the other ways that you can interact with us. And uh, Dan, where are we going on our next leg of this journey? John, we are headed off to sunny Florida and we're going to South Beach and we are. Yes. And we are going to stay right there in the mid 90s. We are going to go to South Beach, Florida. We're going to the birdcage. We're going with Mike Nichols, Robin Williams, Nathan Lane, Diane Weist, Gene Hackman, Hank Azaria, Callista Flockhart. Dan Futterman, Futterman, I think is his name. Yeah. name. Yes, I. Uh, so a a wonderful cast, and you know, I I um I could save this for for the episode, but it, it's my answer to the question. I saw a quote for this the new movie Dicks that's coming out. Oh, Dicks the musical, and yeah. it said something about like Hollywood has finally figured out what to do with Nathan Lane, and I was like, nope, they knew. Like I was like, first of all. There's not one thing to do with Nathan Lane. Secondly, Hollywood knew what to do with Nathan Lane in 1995, and it's the Birdcage, a great uh, one of my one of my favorite comedies, and uh, I'm excited to to talk about it. 
the movie's a blast. I'm excited to talk about it. And stock uh, up on your Pirin tablets. Oh my goodness. I I have to refill my prescription, that's for sure. So, Dan, as you are heading up to the roof to sing Sugar High, I wish you a good journey. Good journey. Good journey.